0: A podcast and you can listen on the go San Francisco Mutiny Radio San
1: Francisco
2: Mutiny Radio Look! Why not go to MutinyRadio.fm Hit the donate button, stream them live
3: Good evening there, my friends here at mutinyradio.f, and Chester Cashcock here, and giving you my love and regard as well as movies over there. And uh, I just wanted to let you guys know that anytime time I go swimming in my vault of rare coins and piles and piles of filthy cash, I can't help but listen to Pamtastic's Comedy Clubhouse But if you can't make it to Mutiny Randy, well don't even worry, don't fret at all. we
4: You get it. And you're going to meet the winners of the Harvest Moon Contest. Jimmy and Joveda dancing to Little Richard and Tootie Fruity.
5: Yeah, you are listening to Mutiny Radio. And we are coming to you from 278121. She's
6: time. got some time.
5: Here. She's got her
6: thoughts.
7: I'm working from home.
5: And that was Little Richard. I'm going to say sort of a final goodbye to Little Richard. Uh, He gave us so much. Uh, Let's see. I'm going to find something to play next to Little Richard. This is the Bee and this is the Labor and Love Show. You're right. Here we go.
6: Moving now -hmm. I know Got news for you I already know Jonathan Livingston Seagull ain't got Nothing on me
5: This is the B. This is uh, a Labor and Love Show. Every Saturday from 10 to 12, we tell you how it is. If one person gets a dollar they didn't work for, like U.S. banks right now, then someone else worked for a dollar they didn't get. That's you. That's all of us, working people. All that extra value that we make with our labor, all that, gets cut up in little pieces and sent to various places. And at those places, there are lots of little pieces arriving and getting scooped up. You don't have a seat at the negotiating table where you work. You're on the menu. Especially nowadays, 40 million of us are out of work. Now these are people who are believers in the system, or at least they realize how the system goes and what you have to do to get along in it. Never but never let anyone into your heart who's not a friend of labor. And when I say labor, I mean you. Labor and Love Radio, where the labor meets the road. Of course, they don't want you to have a union. Your work makes them rich. And it's making them richer and richer now that you're not working. To the tune of billions of dollars. Okay, we've got a a show planned. Always enough stuff to talk about. Got Facebook. Okay, got. Cat Stevens is evidently recording a copy of an earlier album from the '70s called Tea for the Tillerman. We'll play some Cat Stevens brilliant man, proof, proof that in order to be a good writer, you've got to have ideas that are interesting. We're going to hear from the great James Baldwin, a little talk he gave at UC Berkeley in the early 60s, apropos of the present situation, where we have policemen, agents of the state, Torturing and murdering people in broad daylight. Is it true that now that everyone has a camera, things have changed much? No, now they just kill the guy in camera, and then later they get off. We'll see what happens. Ah. Meanwhile, Minneapolis and other American cities are burning. You can't do that. You can't just go out in the street and shoot people. Oh, you can do it, yeah, but people are going to notice. It'll go viral. This is something law enforcement never had to deal with before. Oh. Cops would... This is a matter of, of keeping everybody straight. Cops would go through and just beat up people and humiliate them. And yes, kill them. And it was all undercover. Well, that never happened, right? This is where we get James Baldwin. James Baldwin says the greatest sin of white people in this country is their innocence. For hundreds of years this whole group of people in our midst have been catching hell from police and from everybody else their lives have been immeasurably more difficult because of racism and it all happened all's happening right in front of us in the white community that white people can say well <clears throat> is that true what what I mean maybe the guy had you know bringing in doubt no it isn't like that it's a campaign it's part of part of part of America this is what America was founded on a white man's state a rich white man's state by God, they're not going to give it up. Anyway, we'll hear from James Baldwin on all this. Then I've been talking about the situationists. I want to get into the situationists this week. Situationist international is like a kind of uh, Marxism for the 21st century. In other words, these people and a guy named Guy Debord, Looked at the way consumption changed us, what consumption did to us by putting ourselves in the role of consumers, which we all do. What did that do to you? The board's uh, parlance, it it changed everything. It made us less human. turns us into uh, reactors. Radio labor. Our uh, recap of the uh, week's worldwide labor news labor history in two minutes what was the memorial day massacre and when did it happen we've got news broke talking about reconstruction days francesca fiorentini And then MTV is talking about the lies that Donald Trump has said. What? He said lies? Uh, Steve Earle has a new record out. We'll play a cut from that. And can we save the Postal Service? Something we really need, for example, to uh, help have fair elections. Uh, Okay, well, let's get right into Radio Labor. Radio Labor is put together by uh, a group of people called simply Radio Labor. I think they're based in Australia. But this week's list has several interesting
8: reports. The Labor World Report, recorded on Friday, May 29th, 2020. I'm Mark Belanger. In the report this week, how artificial intelligence and big data will affect the post pandemic economic recovery. The Labor Start report about union events and singing. This is Radio Labor. As the world confronts the pandemic and starts to consider how economic activity is organized after it, labor is questioning the role huge corporations will play. An especially worrisome issue is how corporations will use data collected from individuals and other sources. In order to better understand this, Public Services International commissioned a study by it for change based in India. The PSI is the global union which represents national public service unions at the world level. The report was prepared by Parminder Jeet Singh. A webinar introducing the report was opened with comments by the PSI's assistant general, Secretary Daniel Bertosa,
9: PSI is pleased to be launching this report today we commissioned it because we think that big data and the role it plays in our political economy is not well understood by workers and unions and we felt this for a couple of reasons first it's clear that workers and citizens are creating value by the production of this data but they're receiving almost no compensation for it and that's because the value as an individual data point is almost uh, nil. It's it's negligible. Yet when we collect this data or when large corporations collect the data, it's very, very valuable. And it's the corporations that get the profits from that data. And for PSI, uh, and I think the global labor movement, we see this as another form of extraction of surplus value from labor. And that's really important because it's a significant contributor to rising inequality that everyone's experiencing. We were also worried that it was changing the relationship between labor and capital. And not just because it's undermined a long fought for workplace rights, for example, by facilitating precarious work, although that's very, very important. It's also because it's fundamentally shifting the relationship between the owners of capital uh, and the owners of labor, workers. One of the the main advantages that labor has had historically was that it understood the production process better than capital. You needed workers to make decisions in the production process, but with the ability to process so much data and with the ability for artificial intelligence to make decisions, what we're finding is capital now knows more about the process than workers and they can make decisions without worker involvement. And when you think about that, that's actually quite a massive shift in the power relationship, in the production process. Even in the past, in the last industrial revolution, even though the machine did the work of many, many workers, you still required some workers to turn it on, to maintain it, to understand when it was was overloading, to turn it off if there was a problem, to regulate it. And workers over time, because of their experience with those machines, became skilled. They understood the machine, they understood how it worked, they understood when it needed to be maintained. But with the introduction of AI uh, and big data, all of this is changing. And so often the owner of the data knows more about the production process than the worker. And this has, as I said, massive implications for the relationship, but in particular for the ability of workers to withdraw their labor. Uh, And we need to understand that. PSI has a double interest, both as a trade union, but also as the trade union representing workers in the public services. PSI is also worried that government needs data to make decisions in the public interest to benefit us all, but increasingly this data is held by the private sector and by private sector capital. We think that governments need to guard more jealously this resource, otherwise we'll all suffer. So whether it's the ability to understand traffic flows, perhaps Google or Uber has, whether it's the ability to have the information needed to make decisions about water networks or electricity networks, or even to understand the way in which pandemics spread or the intellectual property around vaccines, or even the regulation of media during elections. Government must have access to the information that's required to allow our democracies to function. Otherwise our public services will be undermined and ultimately democracy itself will be undermined. Now these are fundamental political questions, but they're also really practical ones. How do we understand these threats? Is Labor still able to organize? If so, how? What do they mean for the delivery of quality public services? And what do they mean for democracy? But for workers to take action, Anger is not enough. They must have hope that things can change. And and, and in many cases, we're finding that this hope is ebbing away and we're seeing disengagement from the political process. But Labor has faced these challenges of the introduction of new technology before, and we will again. And I think workers are inventive, and I think workers will find ways to resist. But we must be deliberate in considering this and deliberate in our responses to this. To do this, we really need to start at the beginning and ask ourselves, why is all this happening? And Parminder, your paper describes that. Uh, It describes the change in the political economy that's happened across the globe because of the emergence of big data and AI. And I just wonder, Parminder, if you can start by telling us what you mean by this
10: Thank you, Daniel. Thanks for an excellent introduction. And you are right that if we have to fight successfully the new digital issues in favor of labor power, we need to understand what is happening. What is the theory behind it? Uh, What is the political economy of a digital society? And uh, let me step back. A political economy of any social arrangement is basically arranged around its principal resources. When it was a agrarian feudal system, Land was the principal resource. And we understand and we know that everything in a feudal society was around relationships of land. Who owned the land, who was a serf, who gets the produce, what happens. So everything, everything, who was the king, who was the subject, everything was around land. And then we moved to the industrial society, everything was around ownership of factories and machines, and that became the capital. And our current thinking about the capital labor struggle is largely situated in that industrial paradigm. What has happened actually ha- is that the things have changed. We read a lot about data being the new oil or the new gold, uh, clearly everybody seems to agree that data is the most valuable thing in a digital society and that must be surprising That. If something is the most valuable resource uh, in a particular paradigm why don't people talk more about what is the value of that resource how it is denominated who owns that resource what are the allocatory principles around that resource because it's very basic you couldn't have a a feudal society without describing allocative uh, principles around land same with Uh, industrial society but around data while people agree that it's the central value people don't talk about allocating the value of it and and there lies a tail because immediately the issue would arise uh, who should legitimately own that value people think of data as something well you know it is problematic but not really what is problematic about it so let's think of Not in terms of data, but in terms of intelligence. After all, what does data do? If somebody takes my data, what does that person do with that data? The person develops intelligence about me. So we should be thinking about the central resource as being intelligence, and not so much data. Data contributes intelligence. And once you start looking at intelligence, somebody owning your intelligence somebody knows about the production processes more than the worker who's next to that machine what we have started to do is to outsource our intelligence systematically outsource the intelligence of how we organize our lives google knows more about it outsource the intelligence about the driver not knowing where the customer is, because Uber knows it. So this is a case of outsource intelligence. And what happens with outsourced intelligence is that there are huge global corporations, which is the new form of economic organization in the digital society, which become the sole collectors of data from all places. And they use the data to convert into intelligence about everything, And this centralized intelligence then controls all actors in a sector systematically, whether it's Uber and drivers, Amazon and manufacturers and traders and logistics, or now in health, education and services.
8: Here with his report about union events is Labor Start correspondent Derek Blackadder.
11: Each day, Labor Start's volunteers collect hundreds of news items about the struggles of workers and their unions from around the world. Here's a very small sample of all of their hard work. Our top story sections included links to coverage of some signs that the anti-worker policies of the Indian government are hitting roadblocks, more evidence that the impact of COVID-19 on American workers would have been less had the Trump administration not shut down key programs, and what unions around the world are doing to mitigate the pandemic's impact on women workers. This week we saw a number of largely symbolic, very short strikes, like the Nigerian healthcare workers protest over a 25% wage cut in the midst of the pandemic, and a demonstration by overstressed Canadian nurses who are demanding time off work to recover before the next wave hits that country. Other common causes of strikes this week were personal protective equipment shortages, inadequate patient care equipment in healthcare facilities, and threats of layoffs or wage cuts as governments adopt austerity strategies in response to the pandemic. Unpaid leave forced on workers is also a common complaint. This week's strikes and workplace occupations in Madagascar are an example of how unions are addressing this difficult but critical crisis. There are two other emerging trends in our news coverage. First, and most encouraging, is the appearance of more and more news resembling pre-pandemic labor news stories as normal union activity seems to be picking up again. This isn't always because the affected countries are returning to normal. More often, this seems to be the result of workers and their unions adapting to the circumstances imposed by the pandemic. Second, we're seeing more and more evidence of a collapse in the global air transport industry, as the initial supports offered by governments in many countries, but especially in the global north, expire and are not replaced. Job losses in this sector are huge and growing. We did have some good COVID-19 news this week. Singapore's National Trade Union Congress reported success in matching workers laid off as a result of the pandemic with vacant positions with unaffected employers. And in the UK, union membership continues to rise in part because workers are looking to organize in the face of anti-worker moves by employers and governments. Our Working Women pages, now available in nine languages, included stories about a big win for garment workers in southern India after pressure on clothing brands by unions and other advocates in the global north pushed their employers into paying wages owed to the almost exclusively female workers. And we had coverage of a pay equality result in New Zealand that will see some women education workers receiving pay increases of 22%. This is Derek Blackadder from Labor Start reporting for Radio Labor.
8: Now here are Street Dreamer and OVU with We Shall Not Be Moved.
12: profit Yet we remain poor When we ask for a little more They seem to ignore That we picked their food Took care of their kids We cleaned the office We made their profits We are the teachers The nurses The plumbers We work the winters And into the summers We built the junction We work construction They need us So they can function We'll take it to the streets To fight for what's right For the people united Shall never be defeated Your greed will be greeted With the force that is needed By the people that you've cheated All the lives that you've wrecked. With the laws you neglect, we're taking a stand And we're taking to the streets We're walking hand in hand, you should understand We shall not be moved until we get Dignity, justice and respect
8: That's it, international labor news you can use. You can listen to our features and daily newscasts at radiolabor.net. Follow us on Twitter at radiolabor. I'm Mark Boulanger. Thank you for listening. And remember, it's all about caring for each other through global solidarity.
13: To see you in your soul when you lie Don't try and tell me that you couldn't foresee What everybody reckon was a matter of time Goddamn right I'm emotional I ain't nothing but a man Hell yes, this is personal Before we leave here you're gonna understand It's about fathers It's about sons It's about lovers waking up in the middle of a night. It's about muscle, it's about bone, it's about a river running thick of that water, and it's about blood. Once upon a time in America, working man knew where he stood, nowadays just getting by is a miracle, probably couldn't give it up if i the state of the economy Fiscal reality private and lost None of that matters Once you're underground Anyway Damn who Can't tell me Nothing about cost It's about fathers It's about sons It's about lovers Waiting up in the middle Of a night alone It's about muscle It's about bone It's about a river Running thick get water And it's about God, Is that the wind you hear howling through the holler, or the ghost to the river that craft, for every man to died for a cold a dollar, a lump full of dust and a heart full of lies. It's about fathers, it's about sons, it's about lovers waiting up in the middle of a night alone. It's about muscle, it's about bone about a river, run up the kill them water and it's about blue.
14: Chapman, Robert E. Clark, Charles Timothy Davis, Corey Davis, Michael Lee Ellswick, William L. Griffith, Stephen Herrera, Edward.
7: Everyone has stuff they don't use.
5: last two were from Steve Earle a new album of his just came out this week Um, Ghosts of West Virginia Earl sings a lot about that life, the devil put the coal put the coal in the ground and the other one was it's about blood it's about the real about all these ideas and uh, and regulations and all that—it's about blood and it's about working-class blood. So, right now, I want to switch gears a little. <coughs> Not really, though. The working-class struggle and the struggle of uh, African Americans in this country for freedom, as Nina Simone would put it, Uh, fair treatment, whatever, begins more and more to look as if that'll never happen. Hmm, Will that ever happen in America? It's something that has been present in the American psyche. American way of looking at the world from the very beginning with the slavery relationship between blacks and whites. That was the interloctory thing. Slavery held them together. One group owned the other and depended on the other for their uh, financial success. That was a pretty passionate embrace in some points, as in the case of uh, Thomas Jefferson, and in the case of the massive number of rapes that were part of the system, part of the whole structure. Blacks and whites were often physically together, certainly much more than our mass media is uh, willing to talk about. The point, though, is this. It's not changing. It's, it's something we keep passing on. We don't deal with it. We, we uh, compromise. We uh, write a constitution where a slave is three-fifths of a person and an Indian and Indians. Okay. We compromise. We let some states in as slave states, and we let some states in as free states. They should all be free states, of course. As James Baldwin, who's going to give this talk, said at one point, the whole idea of slavery depends on the fact that people pretend, people act, like the enslaved person is not a person. But everybody knows it's a person. So, let's listen to some more James Baldwin.
4: If any of you can't hear me, let me know. I'm not gonna talk to you very long. I don't really like to make speeches. But I thought we would, I would say a few things and then we would then you would ask me questions and we'd get something started. <laughs> I sort of have to begin where everybody's mind more or less is, where mine is too, with the, the recent events in, in Birmingham, in Alabama. And we all have been, in the last few days, exposed to analysis and counter-analysis and even charge and counter-charge about the events down there and there's no point in going over again things I know you know too much about such details as hoses and dogs leashed on children and the police chief saying look at those niggers run and all the crisis now in Birmingham because they run out of jails and paddy wagons. These things we sort of know, that is to say we've seen them. What I want to suggest is something beyond that, and it's this, and I want very strongly to suggest it to you, because you are the generation which may be able to, make, to achieve the American Revolution. People 20 years older than you have several reasons for wanting to believe and for believing that what is happening in Birmingham is special. They do, n- they do not know and do not want to know that for any Negro born in this country, Birmingham is not special at all. It seems melodramatic if you're white. And if you're, even if you are a member of the Negro middle class and you think that you have achieved a certain status, security, um, that your children are relatively safe because you have a house and a car and never have to deal with the naked facts of segregation because if you have enough money, you can be protected against those. Both camps are deluded, both the white people who think Birmingham is special and Negroes who think that they can somehow escape the implications of the presence of this city in this country. My point is, when I traveled south for the first time, I was past 30. I've been out of this country for a very long time. And I'd always been afraid to go south because my father and my mother came from the south. And when you're little, and this is one of the things which it means to be a Negro, things filter into your consciousness when old folks are talking and think that you're asleep. And what they're talking about, of course, is the trouble they've seen, what they've been through, and what they're also talking about, though you don't realize this until you're older, is the trouble that you, the child, is going to see and what's in the forefront of the Negro parent's mind is how to protect the child from what he knows is coming, from the day the child is called a nigger, and even more important, from the day when the child is a very young man and has begun to believe what the Republic says, that he can go no higher than the Republic says. When I went south, the plane landed in Atlanta, and I wandered around it, The thing which struck me, and this was true, absolutely true throughout my whole journey south that time and ever since, the thing that struck me was that it was terribly familiar. There was only one thing in the south which baffled me at all, and that was simply the etiquette. That is to say, I knew that I was doing something wrong by the way I walked, and by the way I sounded. I didn't sound like a southern negro. I didn't walk like a southern negro. And everyone in the town, everyone in the South knew, and this is what it means, this is what the Southern way of life means. Everyone knew, it's as though we were all walking across a a room, a carpeted room, beneath which carpet there were 25 million live wires. One of these wires, if you stepped on it, would blow the whole thing up. Everyone in that room called the South knew where that one wire was. I didn't. That was the only difference, though. I didn't know how to say yes, sir, in the right way, if I could have said sir so at all, which was dubious. But the way Negroes were treated there, what people really thought of Negroes was not strange at all. The way Negroes bo- Negro boys and girls talked to me was not strange at all. The way white people talked to me, those few white people who did, let's say in a town like Charlotte, which considers itself, relatively speaking, emancipated. And we'll return to that word emancipated in a moment. White people said, race relations here are excellent. We have never had any trouble. Whites and blacks get along perfectly. Of course, they never saw each other. (laughs) Except in very limited conditions, that is in kitchens and under cars, black men under a car. I didn't find a single Negro though, not one, not even the Negro bourgeoisie who agreed with this. Race relations there were fantastically horrible, but they were all under the carpet. No one talked about it, therefore it did not exist. Now when Northerners talk about Birmingham and appalled as they are by the violence there, what is really in their tone of voice when they talk, let us say, to me, is some desire to be reassured that what is happening in Birmingham is really happening in South Africa, and that it can never happen here, here being at the moment San Francisco, yesterday Seattle, the day before that Denver, here being New York, here being Chicago, here being in fact the North, where Negroes are accepted until they try to be accepted Now this is very important. I said that you're the generation which must begin to change this. What is important is to recognize this, that it has never been in the Negro's mind and it has never been, in fact, our celebrated Negro problem, either a Negro problem or a regional problem. My problem, for example, the years of my life has never been the color of my skin, I don't care, or the texture of my hair. None of these things have kept me awake till four o'clock in the morning. What on the other hand has been my trouble, my burden, has been what these attributes do to the people who see them. It doesn't keep me awake till four o'clock in the morning, but as far as I can tell, it keeps a great many other people awake till four o'clock in the morning. (laughs) If one believes, how can I put this? I want to make it as clear to you as I can. Let's use a very common metaphor. When I was younger, and in the days when one began to suspect, I mean when one was about 10 years old, when one began to suspect what the future held for you because you were black, and at the point you began to realize dimly, but as a child does very uh, very powerfully, why your mother spent so much time scrubbing your hair with Vaseline, why you were always told not to act like a nigger, At the point when one began to suspect, in fact, that one was in for trouble for the rest of one's life, one began to hear, I began to hear, somehow, for the first time, that music that we call jazz. Now, of course, this music that we call jazz has been around in this country for a very long time. It dates from the auction block. And white Americans claim to love it. They love spirituals. They loved Mahaley Jackson. They loved the Duke. They loved Ray. They loved poor Billy. They even loved poor Bessie Smith. If anyone had really been interested in knowing in all these years what the story really was, there it was. All one had to do was listen. When Bessie said, my house fell down and I can't live there no more, she was not talking just about a literal flood she was talking about her, her sorrow, her pain, and also ours because of what she had to see and endure. Because she, because, how can I put this to you? What, the terms of her life were these. Were the, that she had to understand and accept and even rejoice in. That she had no place, no, no certain place. She was, as we say in another song, a pilgrim and a traveler. Now this sounds very romantic, I think what Negroes have had to know in this country though for all this time is that in order to survive to become a man one had to learn how to dance not like uh, Fred Astaire the way somebody dances on a tightrope the way somebody dances in the boxing ring the way someone learns how to take a fall and how to get up when you're taking the fall how in fact to become a man in spite of all those things which are determined to keep you from becoming a man. That's the Negro experience, put too briefly. And it's expressed every time you hear anything Ray Charles plays on that piano of his, or any time you look into that face. I want to suggest this then, that as he uses it, as the Negro population has had to use it, so now the country must. There are some uses to which one can put the blues. Because conversely, the white population has always assumed that there was some way to escape acquiring a face like Ray Charles, or a tone like that, or sorrow like that, or triumph like that. There is still only one way to become a man or to become a woman. It is something that you do yourself. You take home a little kit and you put yourself together as many times as you're broken apart. If we think of the Negro problem as being essentially a question of masters, in this case, the white population is a master, and victims, in which case the Negro is a victim, one makes a very great mistake, because the white population can no longer act toward this problem, toward this one-tenth of a nation, as though they were all missionaries. Negroes cannot be saved by people who refuse to save themselves. What we are fighting for, if one still believes in it, is to achieve, at last, the American Revolution. The American Revolution, according to me, assumed that every man in this country had the right to become a man. I think your elders have betrayed you by teaching you that it was more important to become a success, more important to be safe, and have betrayed you in another way. Our entire history betrays us in this way. If one is going to get an education, if one is going to become what is called an educated man or woman, if I am the teacher, the only way I can help you get this education is to teach you how to think. Thinking is not a luxury. Thinking is not something that embroiders a life. Thinking is what a life finally in one way depends on. But in order to learn how to think, one must be taught to think about everything. There can be nothing that one cannot think about. There can be nothing that one cannot examine. There can be nothing that one is afraid to overhaul or to change. It is what's called masculine sensibility. In this country, this is one of the things that it means to be an American. It is one of the great dangers of being an American. In this country, there's always been something not to think about. And what that was was me, sometimes called Sambo, sometimes called Uncle Tom, sometimes a rapist, sometimes a saint. These are your inventions, not mine. The effort the Republic has expended in not thinking about me, has weakened its grasp of reality to a very sinister extent. It shows, I think, in every level of our lives, from the most private to the people ask you in very good faith, until today, 1963, one year after the Emancipation, would you let your sister marry one? They still think that's a question. And they mean it. And they don't realize out of what kind of spiritual and moral emptiness and panic such a question can come. It has never been a question of who married whom, besides which it was 400 years too late to talk about miscegenation. I'm produced I'm by it. If one can be so confused on this level, it means that one doesn't know what to tell one's child. And after all, let me tell you this. In spite of all the books written about how to raise your child and all the theories about it, ultimately you raise your child in one way only. You are his model. If you don't know what you mean, if you are lying, the child will know it. Children don't listen to what you say. They listen to what you don't say. They watch what you do and they become You, their model, uh, make them become. We've all been, I think, I know everyone in my generation has, at one point or another, been in the position of crying in the middle of his life, when it should have been done, to find a model on which which some standard to prove that you could be a man. Because in this country, we no longer believe in them. Now, to finish this off, then you can have a chance at me. What I'm saying in effect, is that this is not a white country. It is a myth that we can no longer afford. We are living in a time of revolution. It is our job, not to try to prevent these revolutions, but to use them. I talked for a minute ago about the weakening of our grasp of reality. I had in my mind for one thing, the entire Cuban fiasco, the entire, entire Cuban disaster. And what I'm meaning to suggest by that is this, that we have no right not to know the existence of the Cuban peasant and what that means, what the Cuban peasant lives and endures and how he must feel toward us. Now every Negro in this country has some sense of that, so that for example, it would be difficult for my morale to allow me to go to Cuba, to free Cubans, when I cannot, when I'm not free here. My point is that the country ought to know it. Americans must discover that really they are not the people from heaven. They come from the shores of Europe. We have a long, long past, the human past. Everything that has happened in the history of the world, all the follies, all the disasters, all the heartbreak, that's the American lot too. There's no way to escape it. All one can do is use it. That's life to say yes to it, and to use it, to triumph over it. And then we could finally achieve an identity here, and stop being as we are now, trapped in effect between two oceans, one going east and one going west. That's one of the reasons it's so important to be white here, because it's the only thing one can be sure of. And that means if you're going to be white, then someone's got to be black. That's me. Now it's time to end this adolescent nightmare. I look to you to help us.
11: University of California, Berkeley.
15: This song is really, it's basically, uh, it's made me a lot of money, that's what it's basically done. <laughs> uh, no, apart from that, I wrote it while I was on a train, oh god, It really true. And I was, uh, I was thinking of Alfred Hitchcock at the time, and his lovely chin. And if everybody could, you know, love Alfred Hitchcock, I think it would be a better world, don't you? What? Now I've been happy lately Thinking about good things to come And I believe it could be Something good has begun Now I've been smiling lately Dreaming about the world as one. Well and I believe it could be. someday it's gonna come. Sound on the air tonight. the rides a peace train. Oh, peace train, take this country. Come take me home again. Now I've been smiling late, thinking about good things to come. And I believe it could be. train sounding loud, ride right on the peace train, ooh-wah-ee-ah, ooh-wah, come on, peace train, This peace train holy rolling, everyone jump on the peace train, ooh-wah-ee-ah, ooh-wah, come on, peace train, let get your Not so far from you. And it's getting nearer. Soon it could all be true. Oh, these strings sounding loud. Hi, hi, on oh, the beach range. Crying lately, thinking about the world as it is Why must we go on hating? Why can't we live there? It's out on the edge of darkness. There yeah, rides a peace chain. Oh, peace train, take this country. Come oh, take it home again. Peace oh, train, sound and loud. Right on the peace train. you've been beautiful.
5: Okay, that was Aaliyah in a party mood. Throw your hands up. Okay, let's see. We had uh, (coughs) James Baldwin talking his talk. We heard uh, Annie DeFranco About which side are you on? <clears throat> For that, we had uh, James Baldwin. Now, I want to talk a little bit today about the Situationists, and um, this will just be an introduction to to um, what the Situationists are about. Um, They come out of the 1968 uh, student worker uprising in Paris in May of that year. And uh, for a long time, they just took over the running of society. But out of that came this philosophy called the society of the spectacle, situationists. And the implication here is that the traditional Marxian uh, analysis is kind of flat-footed. It's outdated in a way. You feel that there are a lot of origins there, w- places for you to go. But this is the one way place where people took it. The Society of the Spectacle by Guy Debord. And uh, some of it is a little, um, shall we say, zen-like. It kind of, um, uh, Well, anyway, listen to what you think. The situation is...
16: The Society of the Spectacle. It has been postulated that we do indeed live in a society. If this were the case, what kind of society would we find ourselves in? The Society of the Spectacle was and is a groundbreaking piece of theoretical work and scathing Marxist social critique emanating from a man known as Guy Debord released in 1967. Guy took aim at what Debord called the Spectacle. If you think of the madness of the world that is most obviously seen in the Kim Kardashian TMZ timelines the world of decadence, reality TV shows and housewives of this city or that place, then you might have a basic idea of how this spectacle manifests. But it isn't exclusive to these celebrity hotspots. It exists everywhere in society and in much more complexity than this. In 1952 Guy Debord created the Letterist International in Paris and eventually in 1957 the Situationist International. These were anti-authoritarian Marxist movements that had a scathing critique for society. One of my favorite quotes from this book is, The spectacle presents itself as a vast inaccessible reality that can never be questioned. Its sole message is, what appears is good, what is good appears. The passive acceptance it demands is already effectively imposed by its monopoly of appearances, its manner of appearing without allowing any reply. This is really why life seems insane, a crazy display of moving images, the omnipresent spectacle populated by images of this person in those shoes, or vague social commentary of time is dilating and society is insane these days. The news cycle perpetually getting more corporatized, And the population getting ever more aware that the fact that something, somewhere, is wrong even if they don't know what that is. Currently, we exist inside the most hyper intense version of the spectacle that Boer could have imagined. Boer was writing in a time when only the TV just existed. Social media and the internet absolutely did not exist. Debord defined the spectacle as the autocratic reign of the market economy, and says, the spectacle is capital accumulated to the point that it becomes images. And you know what this means in the world of the internet? Memes. Fucking memes. All these goddamn fucking images of this and that, nothing but incarnations of the spectacle in mimetic form. As Debord stated, the spectacle is not a collection of images. It is a social relation between people that is mediated by images. Ah, so this explains the fucking cringe this and woke that and whatever the fuck this is.
4: Scientists be like, uh, can we, can we double check that? Can we fact check that? Can we make sure that that's correct? I don't think it's correct. Shut the
8: fuck up, dude. Just chill out. so you know, fun.
16: This is the spectacle at its most clear, social relations between people or groups of people mediated by images. The spectacle is an alienating thing by definition, which is probably why depression and suicide rates are rising, one of the many reasons I'm sure. Even national and international discourse is had in mimetic form, more images and spectacles mediating human interaction. And every new meme that the internet conjures up is yet another emotion or feeling that you can use to further your social interactions via the medium of images. You can very quickly see how this idea ties into capitalism. The quote, what appears is good, what is good appears. Advertising or corporate power is one of the driving forces of the spectacle. On that topic, I just need to teach you something real quick about technology and the nature of technology because I keep hearing people say things like technology is neutral and I absolutely, fundamentally disagree with this and it's not true, okay? So, the way I see this is that technology takes on the class characteristics of the people who develop and use it to their own advantage, okay? You can very simply think of this as the ABC of power drivers that advance technologies. Okay, A, B, C. A, armed forces. Okay, so this is obviously the military. They are a huge driver of um, technological advancement. Everyone knows this. That's what everyone always states as the um, benefit of a war, right? Technological advancement. We get some nice, nice new gadgets and tools to play with. Um, the TOR project is an example of this. Uh, it was developed by the United States Naval Research Laboratory. So the B is bureaucracy. So this is government, government power, everything to do with the sort of ever increasing Kafkaesque version of um, the state that we all live under. So obviously bureaucracy itself is a huge power driver. They also push for the advancement of technology. And C, corporate power. So uh, yeah, no, no prizes for guessing what this is. This is everything to do with corporate power, increasing profits, efficiency, private money, etc. Um, which is the third driver of technological advancement. Now this is important because the spectacle by extension is not neutral. Okay, It takes on the class characteristics and motives of the ABC of power drivers. It's also important to remember these class contexts because of how the technology is used this technology is used and can be seen in every advert, on every phone, on every billboard and all general advertising space in the country. And in a society like this, where commodity fetishism rules, Debord diagnosed that, quote, all that was once directly lived has become mere representation, end quote. And this is where the idea of the culture industry comes into this. Capitalism produces culture as products this would be in the form of films, TV shows. It's actually the whole premise of what Hollywood is and what Hollywood does. Adorno is a uh, personal hero of mine and I actually think I'm going to do another uh, video on his work specifically but it does tie in here with the spectacle. Capitalism is the problem here, is what Adorno shows. Capitalism produced the spectacle and maintains it every single second. Let's look at two more important quotes from the book. Quote. The society based on modern industry is not accidentally or superficially spectacular. It is fundamentally spectacular. In the spectacle, goals are nothing, development is everything, and the spectacle aims at nothing other than itself. Notice Guy said modern industry here. He's talking about capitalism and that development within capitalism is everything infinite growth on a planet with finite resources is exactly what capitalism comes down to and it is no longer sustainable given our global situation the next quote is as long as necessity is socially dreamed dreaming will remain a social necessity the spectacle is the bad dream of a modern society in chains and ultimately expresses nothing more than its wish for sleep the spectacle is the guardian of that sleep This second quote shows Guy's understanding of dialectics with the first line of as long as necessity is socially dreamed, dreaming remains a social necessity. It's actually very reminiscent of if you stare into the abyss, the abyss stares back at you. Um, That is of course a Nietzsche quote. These quotes combined could provide good evidence that the spectacle is total and unable to be escaped or fought back against in any way, shape or form. Except if the spectacle is a reflection of the ruling economic order, then it can indeed be changed. It's not unable to be fought against. He didn't just give a descriptive reading of the spectacle however, he did devise a number of tactics that could be used to create a counter-hegemony against the spectacle's rule. One of these is known as detournement. It can be defined as turning expressions of the capitalist system and its media culture against itself or using images of the spectacle and language of the spectacle to disrupt the flow of the spectacle. I'll put some examples on screen sometimes known as situationist pranks, the Situationist International also comprised of artists, some of which use techniques like these in their work. Now I understand what I'm telling you can feel overwhelming and like a fight between David and Goliath at times when you understand the gravity of the situation. The ideal solution would be that your counter-hegemony gets to the point that you can impact societal change in a systemic way. However, if you are unable to make this type of change, each individual person can individually combat the logic of the spectacle. Unfortunately, the spectacle is here to stay as long as humanity's relationship with capitalism remains the same. Only when the class antagonisms within the society are dealt with, can the nature of the spectacle be impacted systemically. As previously mentioned, the spectacle is an alienating thing by definition. So living your life in the most authentic way you know how, even in a Nietzschean sense to keep to the Nietzschean theme, if that's your thing, this is a rebellious act to the spectacle. As Camus said, quote, the only way to deal with an unfree world is to become so absolutely free that your very existence becomes an act of rebellion. Even the most ardent, hard determinist could take a lesson from the existentialists here when it comes to will and willpower. Even if everything is determined, we as humans do not know what we are determined to become, so always try your hardest because none of us know what we are capable of and what we will become. And few of us honestly have uh, an ego large enough to tell ourselves how amazing and fantastic we are 24-7 lucky you if you do. Now uh, as a Marxist I completely understand the limitations of this individualist approach um, in the Camus quote and the lack of systemic understanding of why people are not free or cannot live um, like they are you know due to the impact of mainstream liberal social hegemony that shapes their outlook on life but if you are lucky enough to be able to take this advice then uh, please do so because guys, a lot of people making small changes adds up to a large, substantive change. That's all for me for today's video guys. Don't forget to like and subscribe and leave comments because I will 100% reply to all of them. Join the Discord guys, I'll leave a comment below and I hope you That
5: was the uh... <clears throat> Zen Marxist. Part of our spectacle, of course, is politics, the stage. And (coughs) we now have a player who comes out on stage and performs for us, performs for his people. He's the president of part of the country, of the Confederacy. Um, Every racist thing he's ever said, let's hear this.
2: Donald Trump. While Trump claims he wants to make America great again, he's had some not-so-great things to say about the very people he claims he wants to lead. Don't believe me? Here are some of Donald Trump's greatest racist hits.
17: I have a great relationship with the blacks. I've always had a great relationship with the blacks. African-American youth. I mean, to the point where they've just about never done more poorly. There's no spirit. There's. Killings on an hourly basis, virtually. A well-educated black has a tremendous advantage over a well-educated white in terms of the job market. I've said it on one occasion, even about myself. If I was starting off today, I would love to be a well-educated black because I believe they do have an actual advantage. I've read hundreds of books about China over the decades. I know the Chinese. I made a lot of money with the Chinese. I understand the Chinese mind. The concept of global warming was created by and for the Chinese in order to make U.S. manufacturing non-competitive. Negotiating with Japan, negotiating with China. When these people walk in the room, they don't say, oh, hello, how's the weather? It's so beautiful outside, isn't it lovely? How are the Yankees doing? Oh, they're doing wonderful, great. They say, we want dear. I love Mexican people. I have a tremendous relationship. I also respect Mexico. When Mexico sends its people, they're not sending their best. They're not sending you. They're not sending you. They're bringing drugs. They're bringing crime. They're rapists. And some, I assume, are good people. The Mexican government is much smarter much sharper, more cunning, and they sent over the bad ones because they don't want to pay for them. And I'm not just saying Mexicans. I'm talking about people coming in from all over that are killers and rapists, and they're coming into this country. I am the least racist person there is, and I think most people that know me would tell you that.
2: I am the least racist. Whichever way you feel after hearing these statements, please, Remember to register to vote. Like, please,
7: register to vote. I know, I know. Remembering the reconstruction from 11th grade history is tough because we were all high. It's okay. Our teacher probably did what the nation did and basically skipped right over it. For the first time in a long time, Americans are talking about reparations. You know, the 40 acres and a mule type reparations promised to former slaves after the Civil War. Although in today's money, it'd be more like a two bedroom apartment and a brand new Honda Accord. A very reliable apology car. But of course, you can't have an honest conversation about reparations without a whole lot of dishonest white pundits weighing in.
17: The reparations thing eventually as the decades go by becomes Uh, ridiculous. This term reparations is just a nice sounding word for shakedown.
8: They
7: keep blaming America for the sin of slavery, but the truth is throughout human history, slavery has existed and America came along as the first country uh, to end it within 150 years and we get no credit for that. Okay, okay. Let's just peel off one layer of that idiocy. America gets no credit for ending slavery? That's as asinine as saying, Hitler never gets credit for killing Hitler. While 58% of black Americans support the idea of reparations, it's an incredibly difficult discussion to have with many white people. If only there were some soft-spoken white woman, like a life coach or therapist or presidential candidate who could look Americans right in the face and say, We have not lived and we are not living on the principles on which we purport to stand. One of these areas is the issue of race. I propose a $100 billion plan
2: of reparations.
7: Okay, Becky, with the good incense! Oh no, I'm starting to unironically love her. Quick, someone dig up an old tweet of her saying something weird about vaccines. Look, reparations for 250 years of systemic violence, mass murder, torture, and rape that killed millions and inflicted generations of collective trauma shouldn't be controversial. And no, I'm not even talking about Native Americans. If you think reparations are controversial, go watch 12 Years a Slave again. Or for the first time, if your name is Tanner. The U.S. has given reparations before. Back in 1862, to former slave owners. Yeah, that's right. Those who did the enslaving got $300 per slave freed. That's like telling Jeffrey Epstein, sorry you can't fly your plane to Pito Island anymore. Here's Micronesia. The fact that we can't even talk about reparations without a national freakout is indicative of how far we have to go in dealing with our racist history. Also the fact that this is our president. Some say we need a Truth and Reconciliation Commission for slavery, something similar to South Africa's when they took stock of the atrocities committed to maintain apartheid. Others are looking at this special moment in whiteness and seeing it as part of a familiar pattern, a racist reaction to whenever black people get anything, the Little Mermaid included. And dealing with that might require something bigger, Perhaps a reconstruction. The part of American history that Bill and Ted, like, totally skipped over, dude. So, this is Franny Fio's less than excellent adventure. Excellent! Yay! How did we go from the Emancipation Proclamation to a hundred years of segregation? Well, that actually wasn't the initial plan. The initial plan was something called the Reconstruction. No way. Way. The Reconstruction was essentially the federal government's plan to ensure equality to newly freed people right after the Civil War. It was what Harvard professor and historian Henry Louis Gates Jr. calls...
6: The maximum period of black freedom in the history of this country.
7: Yeah. The Reconstruction was such a critical moment in this country that many also call it the second founding of America. Congress passed the first Civil Rights Act and three new constitutional amendments fundamental to American democracy, the 13th, 14th, and 15th. And black men got unprecedented political representation. By 1877, 16 black men were in Congress. And to think that's a full 139 years before Hamilton. Many, like the leader of the Poor People's Movement, Reverend William Barber, call the Reconstruction an experiment in interracial democracy.
12: African Americans joined hands with white former farmers in the South. They rewrote state constitutions. They guaranteed public education as a constitutional right in the South. They were talking about labor rights in 1868. This is 1868. Blacks and whites working together.
7: That's incredible. It's like we were building a more perfect youth. But... How'd I know that was coming?
12: Many former Confederates saw the black citizenship and black leadership connected with white leadership as inherently illegitimate.
7: Yep. The whole plan ultimately failed, mostly because of southern white terrorism. The KKK was formed and began attacks soon after the 13th amendment was passed. No way. Way. The reconstruction also failed because Lincoln was assassinated and his vice president didn't actually believe in it at all. In fact, Johnson was impeached and nearly removed from office over his support for white supremacy. And to think, 150 years later, we can't even do that much. The federal government, under hipster dreamboat Ulysses S. Grant, tried to protect the black population in the South with federal troops. But the economy nosedived, and the government decided it was too expensive to keep them there. So even though black people were free, there was no mechanism to protect them. Which is insane. That's like when your parents brought you to Chuck E. Cheese but gave you no tokens for the arcades. And the ball pit was made of snakes. Racist snakes. To politically roll back the Reconstruction, state legislatures in the South created Jim Crow laws that segregated whites and blacks and chipped away at the new amendments, forcing people to pay a poll tax or pass a literacy test to vote. No way! Way. That's why there was another Reconstruction, 91 years later, also known as the Civil Rights Movement, which tried to establish what the first didn't. It dismantled 100 years of Jim Crow policies and got the Civil Rights Act and the Voting Rights Act passed. But the movement actually became broader. It became about critiquing war, capitalism, patriarchy. No way. Way. It's actually pretty cool. The importance of this Second Reconstruction is so powerful, even Trump paid tribute to the life of MLK, even though until recently he probably thought the MLK Jr. was an item on the Burger King menu. I love the MLK Jr. but why is it only available in February? And just as after the First Reconstruction, there was a violent white backlash to the Second, assassinations by white supremacists and repression by police.
18: Oh, yes.
7: Okay, that's just insensitive. The backlash to the Second Reconstruction has also taken forms like Bill Clinton's welfare reform or the war on drugs, which grew the prison population into what Professor Michelle Alexander calls the new Jim Crow.
2: Today there are more African American adults under correctional control in prison or jail, on probation or parole, than were enslaved in 1850. No way.
7: Did you say it? But the backlash gets even more insidious. It took forms like Nixon's Southern strategy, appealing to Southern white racism. Just listen to Ronald Reagan's advisor Lee Atwater back in 1981, talking about how Republicans can get the racist vote without sounding racist.
13: You start out in 1954 by saying, by 1968, you can't say, that hurts your backfires. Now you're talking about cutting taxes. And all of these things you're talking about are totally economic things, and the byproduct of them is, blacks get hurt worse than whites. We want to cut taxes. is much more abstract than, than even the busing
14: thing, and a hell of a lot more abstract than n-
7: Oh yes, quite abstract. You might say that Reagan was the Picasso of racism, whereas Trump is the macaroni art of it. That racial coding around social programs continues today. Entitlements, poor work ethic, and other coded language.
17: I don't want to to make people's lives better by giving them somebody else's money.
7: Okay, well, that's code in the same way that this is code for table for five. The pattern is clear. Every time there's a fight for black rights, it goes deeper than the last. And each time black people gain a bit more power, especially executive power, there's yet another backlash.
15: Why
8: doesn't he show his birth certificate?
7: Wouldn't you love to see one of these NFL owners,
17: when somebody disrespects our flag, to say, get that son of a off the field right now? Look how much African American communities have suffered. You're living in poverty. Your schools are no good. You have no
7: jobs. What the hell do you have to lose? Your dignity. So if the first Reconstruction was fought against, and the second did a bit of what the first was supposed to do, but continues to be rolled back, especially now with the gutting of the Voting Rights Act, maybe what we really need now is something bigger than reparations, something even scarier for racists. We need a third and much bigger Reconstruction, one that Reverend Barber sees us in the middle of.
12: You've got fight for 15 young black and white Latinos coming together in this country all over, That's a sign. You have Moral Mondays. You got Black Lives Matter. You have the environmental movement happening. Signs that we are seeing a third Reconstruction.
7: The third Reconstruction is picking up where the first two left off, tackling voting rights but also bigger structural changes around the economy, the environment, and our justice system. Because in many ways, the fight for black liberation is at the center of a lot of other fights to protect our constitutional rights and expand democracy. And understanding that scares the powerful a whole lot. So think on this long but fascinating history the next time you think about Separations, but also the next time you think about Bill and Ted. I Don't know how to air guitar (laughs) What's supposed to move? Thanks again for watching news broke make sure to like share subscribe Uh, What are the other ones? Follow do all that and let me know did you ever learn about the reconstruction in school because I just finished reading Grant the like very very long book, his like, biography, and I learned about it for the first time, I think, because I was high, and uh, yeah, I forgot what I was saying, but I'll see you next week. All right, that
5: was our uh, <coughs> News Broke feature with Francesca Fiorentini, and before that we had uh, Francesca Ramsey. <coughs> with Trump's most racist statements. And it's time for us to get out of here. This is the B, in um, Labor and Love Radio. Hope you have a good week, as good a week as you can. Help each other. Remember, we're working people. We help each other. There's no other way, no other way to get on.
10: <laughs>
3: has the best program. Hungry for a burger? Mutiny Radio thinks you'll find the best burger in San Francisco at Counter Offer, located inside Bender's Bar and Grill. Billy Bob? You ever wanna be funny? Well, my dogs think I'm
5: funny, Daryl.
3: Well, I mean, you ever wanna be, like, in front of an audience? Like, other than, like, squirrels, dogs, and dead persons?
15: Oh, shit. From time to time, I've been giving it a thought or
3: two. You know, if you go to Joke Workshop, there's more than two peoples paying attention to your jokes, and they ain't even gonna be jerks about it. Daryl! Are you serious? That's what I'm saying, it's the Joke Workshop Mondays, 6 to 8 p.m.s at the Mutant Radius. Yahoo!
2: Tired of paying too much for your internet? Contracts and hidden fees got you down? Tired of supporting the same big cable companies that lobby against a free and open internet? Get Monkey Brains. Monkey Brains is a local internet provider who doesn't sell your data, bind you down with contracts, or trick you with hidden monthly fees. We're honest, local, and 100% net neutral. Residential internet for only 35 a month. Business packages starting at 75 a month. Go to monkeybrains.net and sign up today.
14: <laughs>
17: or download a podcast and you can listen
8: on the go. Listen to live stream.